We're going to be in the book of Leviticus. If you need a Bible, Randy would be happy to hand those out. And over the past decade, Patrick and I have had a lot of conversations about how I would tell him how much more I liked Wednesdays than Sundays. And we could never figure out quite why. I think the best explanation we came up with was when he would try and describe the difference between preparing a Wednesday message and a Sunday message, as he was teaching me those kind of things, he was like, Wednesday nights is kind of like a family dinner. And Sunday mornings, well, you're having company over, so things got to be a little bit more put together. And I said, I like that, and maybe I'm just a more relaxed kind of guy. But the more I thought about it, I was always so blessed by his ability and his faithfulness to just regularly go through the Old Testament and highlight Jesus where I had never seen him before. And tonight in Leviticus 16, it's impossible to avoid Jesus in contrast to what we're going to look at. But before we focus on really the the insufficiency of the Old Testament sacrificial system before we can see how much better our relationship with Christ is on this side of the cross, I think there's another topic that we should meditate on that will that will make that even more clear than our text will this evening. And it's actually the exact same thing that the youth are doing right now in the annex. They've recently finished a study through the book of Galatians. And all through the book of Galatians, they highlighted grace. And so then as the youth leadership got together and they talked about it, they were like, you know, we want the youth to understand how great grace is, and even though we've talked about grace a a hundred different times in a million different ways, they can't grasp the beauty of grace unless they have a rich understanding of the weightiness of sin. And so right now, the study that they're going through is called Heavy is the Crown, and they're walking all through the Old Testament looking at humanity's history of disobedience and sin and rebellion in contrast to just the amazing grace that we have thanks to Jesus. And we have a tendency to prefer to look at grace than our sin. I think it's natural for us. I was talking with somebody in the office earlier this week And the phrase, we're saved uh, by grace through faith came up. And it was in the context of the youth study. And I I said, wow, that's 100% true. It's not the whole picture. Because grace is not what saved us. We are saved into grace, but every one of our sins was paid for. Judgment was born out for each and every sin and transgression. None of our sins were graced over 
from Jesus' perspective. But it was that that judgment was paid out on someone other than us so that we only received what we didn't deserve, that being grace. Looking at the reality of sin might not be our first inclination. It might not be our our best trick. We much prefer to look at the bright side. And that's really tempting to do as New Testament believers because the reality is the bright side of the life that we have in Christ is the most incredible thing ever. How could we not be tempted to focus on that? But if it's possible, I think looking at this in contrast with the reality of sin makes that bright side even brighter. So, Leviticus 16. We'll start in verse 1. Now, the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they offered profane fire before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at just any time into the holy place inside the veil, before the mercy seat which is on the ark, lest he die. For I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. The reality of God's holiness is an impossible thing for us to understand. And because we can't fully understand or comprehend or or wrap our minds around God's holiness, we can't understand the gap between God in his holiness and us in our sin. We can't even see one side of the spectrum. However holy we think God is, He's more so. However deplorable we think our sin is, it's more so from God's perspective because of the gap between the two. We could never be as offended by sin as God is because we can't even comprehend, much less embody, His holiness. How set apart He is, how free from sin He is. And verses 1 to 2 point to that reality. Uh, They're referencing the event just a couple pages behind us in Leviticus 10. We'll read verses 1 through 3. Then Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it, put incense on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy, and before all the people, I must be glorified. So Nadab and Abihu offered fire to the Lord in a manner that was not how he commanded. We don't exactly have the details of what that entails, but the reality is they were disobedient. And that disobedience in the presence of God and his holiness resulted in their death. That's that's how holy the Lord is, is that sin in his presence has to be dealt with. As I was thinking about this, the picture I had uh, is, is when we used to throw ice cubes in the deep fryer. 
instant violent, these two things do not go together reaction. And the oil will just consume the ice in a, in a, in a glorious and frequently dangerous mess. But chapter 16 opens with that by way of reminder, with that as a warning. And so then God continues to speak to Moses in verse 3. God says to Moses, Thus Aaron shall come into the holy place with the blood of a young bull as a sin offering and of a ram as a burnt offering. He shall put the holy linen tunic and the linen trousers on his body. He shall be girded with a linen sash and with the linen turban he shall be entired. These are holy garments. So verses 1 to 2 show us an example how not to do it. A, a, a very personal example to the people of Israel of how holy God is. So much so that sin, disobedience, even as slight as it was, uh, offering to the Lord at a time or in a way that he had not commanded, could not be allowed, could not be tolerated, had to result in, in the immediate rectification, the immediate destruction of the offenders, even as they were serving as priests. Now, God is going to say how it should be done. How can an unholy, sinful people possibly have a relationship with a perfectly holy God? The answer that chapter 16 gives us is atonement. And atonement is just a really fancy word for covering. We would all like to have perfect bodies, but we do not. So we atone for them, and we put clothes on. We cover these bodies that we have. This whole chapter dealing with what's known as Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, even though those words aren't assigned to this day until later in Leviticus 23. But the covering of the sins is the only way that a sinful people could be in a relationship with a holy God. Now, this was, of course, done frequently through the, the Jewish sacrificial system, much of what the book of Leviticus deals with. But this day, the Day of Atonement, was, was special, and it was different in a couple different ways that we'll cover as we go along. But this was a cornerstone. This was pivotal. This was so necessary for this people, a broken, sinful, rebellious people, to have a relationship with a perfectly holy God. And even that relationship, I, I, I struggle to use the right words because I'm so accustomed to using words like communion and fellowship. And, and I think those might be too strong a words for the relationship that Israel had with God because they're so much more familiar. They're so much more intimate. And as we walk through this Day of Atonement ritual, we'll see that's, that's not what they enjoyed. They didn't have that privilege. So the way the rest of the text is presented is not super easy to follow. So what we're going to do is we're going to stay in chapter 16, but we're going to skip around a bit in order to look at things chronologically.
because the text repeats things a couple times in a couple different places and doesn't necessarily list things all chronologically. So I encourage you to read it on your own after, but we are going to be jumping around top, bottom, middle. I'll call them out as we go to walk through this experience chronologically. So we'll pick up in verse 4. Therefore, he, the high priest, in this case it was Aaron, shall wash his body in water and put them, the linen garments, on. And he shall take from the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats as a sin offering and one ram as a burnt offering. Now, I skipped a verse because I was about to tell you that Moses had five animals. And I've only told you about three. So let's go backwards to verse 3. And it'll say, Thus Aaron shall come into the holy place with the blood of a young bull as a sin offering and of a ram as a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen tunic and the linen trousers. So now we see Aaron. He's washed. He's put on these linen garments. Taken off his priestly attire. He's brought a ram for himself for a burnt offering. He's brought a bull for himself as a sin offering. Then he's come before the congregation of Israel and he's gotten two goats for a sin offering and another ram as a burnt offering. So we have Abraham, not Abraham, that rhymes with ram though. We have Aaron and five animals. Verse 8, he shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then Aaron shall cast lots for the two, lo two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. So now let's go all the way down to verse 16 to get some context before we move on. So he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions for all of their sins. And so he shall do for the tabernacle of meeting, which remains amongst, among them in the midst of their uncleanness. There shall be no man in the tabernacle of meeting when he goes in to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out, that he may make atonement for himself, for his household, and for all the assembly of Israel. So when we look at this chronologically, we notice a couple things. One, what's about to happen with the sin offerings is only to atone for the effects of the sins on the places in the tabernacle. There it says there, he shall make atonement for the holy place. So the first thing he has to do is go through these steps to purify the holy place behind the veil. And then we'll see him make his way out through the tabernacle. But, but all this is just to wipe clean, ritualistically, symbolically, the effects of sin on the tabernacle, which was among the Israelites. Remember, we're trying to take a step back to understand the contrast between God's holiness and our sin. God is so holy that the place in which he dwells becomes defiled just by being around his people, the Israelites. Just by, by being around them. And the temple, or I'm sorry, the tabernacle, one of the most 
protected, set apart, most revered, one of the holiest places in all the people of Israel, still needed to be purified because of the effects of their sins just by its proximity to them. That's how I feel about things with my kids sometimes. If you put something amongst that many tiny people with sticky hands and germs and boogers, it doesn't even have to be their thing. And it just all gets corrupted. The other thing we notice is with what we're about to read, the high priest, in this case Aaron, is entirely alone. No one else is in the tabernacle, a place that's normally very active because this is the vehicle by which uh, the nation of Israel could come and make offerings to atone for what they had done. But because the Lord gives them this institution to deal with that, to deal with their sin corporately as a nation, only the high priest is there. Verse 11. And Aaron shall bring the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bull as a sin offering which is for himself. On your own, I encourage you to go to Leviticus 4 and just look at the details of a sin offering as it's presented there and, and later contrast that. <clears throat> but much of what is about to happen as we read it, some of the major differences, everything that's going to happen in the Holy of Holies only happens once a year on this Day of Atonement. But we'll continue in verse 12. Then he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from the altar before the Lord with his hands full of sweet incense, beaten fine, and bring it inside the veil of the Holy Holies. So, so you come into the tabernacle and you have a large court and inside the large court you have the brazen altar and then near the rear of the tabernacle you have the Holy of Holies and that's of course covered by the veil which inside um, that most holy place you have the Ark of the Covenant the lid of the Ark of the Covenant is going to be the mercy seat, and God says many times that it is above the mercy seat that His glory resides. Verse 13, And he shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the testimony, lest he die. Testimony being the Ark of the Covenant. Verse 14, he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side. And before the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. So as we continue to try and see this gap between God's holiness and the reality of our sin, a number of things already jump out at us. One, we'll rewind and look at Aaron's linen garments. Normally, priests were adorned with beautiful attire. We have pictures of, of them with the jeweled 
breastplates representing the different tribes. But all that is to be put aside, and they put on the simplest, the most plain, the most humble thing that they could to then go before the Lord. What does that tell us? Humility was then and still is now the currency of the kingdom. If there is anywhere you want to go with God, that road is always going to be paved with humility. We also recognize that we always have to deal with our own sins first. We read that and it, 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 it's, it almost sounded weird in, in verse 11. How many times the Holy Spirit, as he authored scripture, um, through Moses said, and, and this bull that he was offering was for himself, in his household, for himself, for himself. Because before he could go and act as a priest on behalf of the people, he, him, his, his own sins had to be atoned for. And that's a step that brothers and sisters in the church, we love to skip that step. It's so much easier for us. We even see in the New Testament in Matthew when the, the, the Lord admonishes us, hey, you have to deal with the speck in your own eye or the plank in your own eye before you can help your brother with the speck. It was the same here with Aaron before the Lord. Verse, uh, no. After all that Aaron has gone through, he's killed a bull, he's collected the blood, he's bathed, he's put on linen garments, he's the only one around, And he still has to put a heap of incense on coals to create enough smoke that the glory of God is shielded. This is, this is the most intimate encounter that an Old Testament believer could have with God. One person, the high priest, once a year, could enter into the place where God's glory, where God's presence dwelt. And even then, because of their position, literally smoke had to fill the air so that the glory of God would not overcome them to the point of death. That's holiness. Verse 15, then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, bring its blood inside the veil, and do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bull, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. So at this point, the holy place has been atoned for, and that's to say that this place where God's glory dwelled has been ritually purified, the, the effects of just being amongst the nation Israel have had on that have been washed away. So he can begin to make his way out of the temple 
or I'm sorry, out of the holy place into the rest of the tabernacle. And yes, I will continue to make that mistake all night. Verse 18, <clears throat> and he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord. This is going to be in the courtyard of the tabernacle and make atonement for it. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. Then he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times, cleanse it and consecrate it from, un, from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. He started with five animals. He offered a bull for himself. He slaughtered the goat to, on, on behalf of the people and then used their blood both to cleanse the holy place and the other elements of the tabernacle. Now we have the second goat. The goat which we see in verse 10, it says, But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it and then let it go as the scapegoat into the wilderness. The details of that we see in verse 21. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat. We've dealt with the fixtures of the tabernacle. Now is when he's actually going forward to make a covering, to make atonement for the collective sins of all of Israel. Lay both his hands on the head of the live goat. Confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat, and he shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness." Now, these two goats show us different aspects of atonement. One was before God and His character and holiness. That the wages of sin is death, and there had to be a price paid for that. That this goat was offered, that the first goat was offered as a sin offering on behalf of the people just for their effects on the tabernacle. Just so that the place where God dwells could continue to be the place where God dwelled as sheltered, as protected, as private as it was. An offering had to be made for that to happen. But the other aspect of atonement is the need of the sinner. Yes, God needs for judgment to be carried out on sin because he is holy. As sinners, we need our sins removed. And so we see the payment in one goat and we see the removal in another goat. Verse 23. Then Aaron shall come into the tabernacle of meeting, shall take off the linen garments which he put on when he went into the holy place, and he shall leave them there. And Jewish tradition says they were never worn again. He 
He shall wash his body with water in a holy place, put on his garments, come out and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. And he who released the goat as the scapegoat, so a guy walks this scapegoat out into the uninhabited wilderness. Again, Jewish tradition says they would walk 10 miles and release the goat. He has to wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come back into the camp. The bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, verse 27, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried all the way outside the camp, and they shall burn in the fire of their skins, their flesh and their offal, um, their, their insides. Then he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. God takes sin so seriously that we see that the guy who walked the goat 10 miles out into the wilderness or the guy who burned the carcasses of the sin offerings, they had to take off all their clothes and wash their clothes and then wash themselves before they could even come back in the presence of the people. Think about the things that we do that with in our society, the things that we find the most dangerous or the most disgusting when we're, when we're talking about um, radiation or anthrax or chemicals, you know, when, when COVID was going, you would see all these news stories of scientists walking around in suits where it's like, how can you even do anything in those suits? Because what they were working with was so dangerous that if it, if it touched them or if it got on them, they could be dead. And then they have to take those big suits and before they can even walk out of where they are, they have to go into one room and be sprayed down and sanitized and then go into a separate room and then take all that off. We're, we're terrified of some of these things. And, and, and rightfully so because they will kill us. The smallest amount, stuff that you can't even see, touch, taste, or smell, just being in proximity to it could be the last thing you ever do. And from God's perspective, this is sin. And, and, and all we can do is try and like point at that reality because we can't grasp God's holiness so whatever picture we paint is just a faint, inaccurate representation or hint at what the reality is. Then we stop. <laughs> and we say, okay, wh what does this have to do with us? What does this have to do with me right now? And at the same time, I would ask the question of, while the priest was doing this, what, was, what were the rest of the people of Israel doing? 
because I think the thing that God called them to do during this day of atonement can also serve as an application for us today in response. We're going to go to verse 29. The Lord says, This shall be a statute forever for you. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict your souls and do no work at all, whether a native of your own country or a stranger who dwells among you. We said we were going to highlight Jesus. One of the most beautiful ways that God is, is drawing such a clear silhouette of the need for a Messiah is right here in this Day of Atonement. Because, because, because what, had, what does he say in verse 30? It says, For on that day the priest shall make atonement for you, to cleanse you that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. Afflict your souls. Really the intention there, the attitude, is, is humble yourself. Humble yourself and don't do anything because someone else is doing all the work that you may be clean from your sins before the Lord. That's what the nation of Israel was called to do on Yom Kippur. But that's exactly what we're called to do as New Testament believers. That we should humble ourselves and, and, and understand that with respect to our salvation, we, we can't do anything. We didn't do anything to earn it. We can't do anything to keep it. The only thing we can do is humble ourselves and rest in the sufficiency of Jesus' work. And then we look at the reality that we know today as, as believers on this side of the cross. And we say, how could I possibly do nothing. I know that I can't do anything for my salvation, but, but understanding how intimate of a relationship I have with a God whose holiness I can't even comprehend, how can I do nothing? Here for Thousands and thousands of years, God's people, year after year, because that's how insufficient this was, all this ceremony is good for a year. That's like, I get my teeth cleaned more than that. And, and, and we're talking about the covering of sins so that you can have a relationship with God? But the sufficiency of what Jesus did makes this seem so 
foreign that we should be humbled. I cannot believe the riches that we have in Christ. That children could have a closer, more intimate, personal relationship with this holy God because of what Jesus did without all this, forever, for eternity. That, that God would dare deal with me and with you more intimately, more personally, closer, more relationally than any Jew before the cross. That's humbling. That's humbling. And we're so aware of the greatness and, and, and the beauty of what we have in Christ. It's, it's the greatest thing any, any of us possess. But tonight, I encourage you to see that as even greater. <laughs> when, when, we, when we realize, when we contemplate, when we meditate on, on, on what, it, what it was like. Has anyone had one of those days where you think you're having the worst day in the world until the Lord through His divine appointments shows you the person that's having a worse day than you are? <laughs> and then you go, oh man, I'm sorry God, it's not that bad. <laughs> I'm not that guy. That's, that's a pale reality of what we have in Christ. That the, the worst on this side of the cross is, is the best thing that we could ever comprehend in all of humanity's history. If I could be so bold as to give you some homework. Hebrews chapter 9 and 10 are the New Testament's response to Leviticus 16. Leviticus 16 walks through and says, this is, is everything you have to do to be able to come before God, even in the limited way that they did. And Hebrews 9 and 10 is a beautiful symphony saying how much greater Jesus is, how irrelevant he has made all of that and how rich our inheritance in him. Praise God for his grace that he would continue to show us how deep that is because it's unsearchable that he would continue to reveal to us the, the breadth and the width of his love because we're never going to find it out. But thank God for his spirit and his word that we can continue to boldly come before him 
and let him show us those things. Father God, your love for us is an impossible thing to behold. Lord, your closeness to us is beyond understanding except for the fact that you see us through the blood of your Son. Lord, we thank you for that sacrifice. We thank you for the cross. Father, we don't want to leave here with guilt or shame, even as we look deep into the depths of our sin and, and the gap between that and your holiness because, because you sent your son to the cross for that too, for guilt and shame. Lord, as we continue to walk this life with you, we ask that you would just help us continue to appreciate what you've done, the amazing life both presently and eternally that you've purchased for us. Lord, show us what to do with each day, with each interaction, with each relationship. Father, that you could be glorified, that this amazing thing that you have done, the walls that were torn down at the cross for our benefit, Father, that those would be used for you to bring forth fruit, for you to reflect glory back on yourself. Lord, we pray this in your son's name. Amen.